Dr. Doreen. Um, Eileen writes in asking, will echolalia decrease? Uh, I have a five-year-old child, uh, a boy on, on the spectrum. Uh, and he, he can also get very aggressive and hit himself out of frustration. So it looks like we're talking about echolalia, um, aggression, and uh, self-injurious behaviors. So actually, I love the fact that you and I get to chat about echolalia a little bit. But uh, in terms of the getting frustrated and hitting himself, obviously, that's uh, most of the behaviors that our kids uh, show, especially the aggressive behaviors, have to do with just frustration and not being able to express themselves. Most likely, he if he could communicate, he'd be saying something like, you know, I don't want to do this or whatever. And some of the children tend to aggress towards themselves because that becomes something that really gains the attention of everyone around them and people tend to panic or freak out when they see a child doing that. So uh, in, for those types of behaviors, obviously, it's always better to try to teach some form of communication. Um, we find that if we can get our children on some form of communication device, if they're nonverbal, even an augmentative device or nowadays the iPad, um, it just starts to dissipate. The aggressive behavior starts to go down because, um, as you always say, it's, if it's easier for them to communicate using the iPad, then they'll stop uh, doing those other types of behaviors. Now, in terms of echolalia, it's interesting because I don't think from a behavioral perspective or any um, real area, we know much about echolalia. Um, I guess historically I would have to say we were always excited when a child would develop echolalia because um, it would be one of the first air, you know, signs that we can develop speech. So right. yeah, at least they're making some sound, right? Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, with some kids in the old days, I remember we used to reinforce the echolalia, um, just whatever it was, in order to be able to increase the production of sound before we tried to gain control over the echolalia and form it. So echolalia not only shows that the child can hear uh, but it more significantly shows that the child is imitating and imitation is one of the very key precursors to all other skill development. So it's not a bad sign. However, um, it does have to come under control at some point. We, we call it uh, SD control or in other words, you the child has to learn to control their imitation of sound um, so that it's functional and not just, uh, let's say, self-stimulatory or uh, repetitive and meaningless. Um, and so a behavior analyst can start to try to form that by uh, allowing the child to imitate things that would then be tagged into like labels or objects or actions or activities that the child wants to interact in and, and not allowing the more repetitive forms of echolalia. Um, so I don't know that to answer the question whether it will decrease. I think in general most of the self-symmetry behaviors tend to change and possibly decrease as the child gets older. Have you found that too, Jonathan? Well, certainly, yeah. Uh, it's been my observation, and I'm not sure actually how much research there is on this, but mm. it's been my observation that as uh, as the kids gain more skills in their therapy programs, and as they progress and basically just have more stuff to do with their time, um, they have so many different other things they could be doing that um, stereotypy or repetitive behavior sort of almost becomes less valuable just That's because right. there's just 
are so many other things they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but one thing I see all the time that, that really frustrates a lot of parents and teachers is that when the kid has a lot of downtime, then, or on, quite honestly, when the kid's bored, um, the, the child might start to resort to echolalia or scripting videos or that kind of stuff. Um, and it's kind of like, well, the kid should know that he's not supposed to do that, right? right. Like when we're in church or when we're waiting in line at the bank or when right. we're sitting in class, we should be listening to the teacher, right? We shouldn't right. be reciting our favorite video script. But let's think about the function, right? <laughs> if the kid's kind of bored and doesn't really have much else to do right then, what would you and I do? We'd probably space out and, and daydream, right? Right. And maybe he's not so good at that or hasn't learned how to do that yet. So it kind of makes sense that he's going to say things out loud to entertain himself. You know, absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because, you know, we all daydream. And, and really the only difference is that you're thinking versus saying. Right. And a lot of our kids don't really know the difference of how to do that. Um, I mean, I could, you know, theoretically, you could take this back into the whole theory of mind thing, and the kids are not aware of. This is also why they're not embarrassed by it, you know, and parents are embarrassed of the child's echolalic, let's say, in a church setting or something, and the child's completely unaware of the fact that everybody else is listening or looking, and that goes back to the lack of theory of mind, not, not being aware of the fact that other people are trying to pay attention to the sermon or whatever else is going on. And doesn't that happen, too, with typically developing children, just at a younger age, younger right? Age, Before right? they learn how to conceal things or lie, they'll say lies out loud or they'll say what they're thinking out loud, right? That's Even right. though that's not going to work because, you know. Right, absolutely. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, in typical development, I think we become very much aware of other people's reactions around age four or something. And that is when the, you know, beginning areas of theory of mind start to develop as well. And with our kids, sometimes that just doesn't happen right. unless they're taught to, to become aware. You know, from a, from, I guess you could also look at echolalia from a sensory perspective that uh, sometimes when you have kids that do play with sound, um, some, some of my kids also will even like press their ear in and out as they're doing it. And I think it's just a kind of playing with sound and what they hear type thing. And it's, you know, the definition, obviously, it falls under the stereotypic repetitive behaviors that don't have a significant adaptive function of any type. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it is important to try to uh, control it, gain control over it, replace it, as you said. and. It's a good perspective. I always learn things from you. I like that. It's a good perspective to remember that the child's trying to engage himself and, um, you know, measure for this parent. It would be important to measure and see if the child does more echolalia when they're unengaged, bored versus when they are actually busy with something. And so that would prove that the function is possibly just trying to engage himself or herself. And then you really want to try to keep the child busy with something more adaptive. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, it would be a tough thing to directly measure, but I'm really interested in even creating um, treatments or lesson plans where we intentionally prompt the kid to engage in their stereotypy, but just in their head, quote unquote. So, right. all right, right, dude, just, yeah, it's not appropriate to talk about this stuff out loud, but how about just thinking about it? Right. That's what you and I would well, do. Well, actually, we have a lesson in the cognitive curriculum called Think Versus Say. Mm -hmm. Right, And yeah. it does focus on that aspect That's of right. w when you can think something in your head. And I just think for our kids, it's a very abstract concept, and it's really hard for them when they're young to understand that concept, because we do all have a voice in our heads, and, and it's just difficult to differentiate. 
Right, right. Yeah. And one thing that I always have to emphasize is the importance of practice. So in typical development, I'm guessing that typically developing kids maybe get punished once or twice for saying something out loud that they shouldn't have, that they should just be thinking, you know, like they tell off their teacher or their parent or something. That's so true. And then just from one or two punishments, they figure out, oh, I better just think that, right? No, that's Whereas right. our kids might require a lot of learning opportunities. That's and I'm not right. saying we should punish them, but we might need lots and lots of practice of, look, here's what it looks like to say it out loud. Here's what it looks like to think. Which right. one works better? Now right. try it again and again and again. Exactly. And again, it goes to, you know, some, with typically developing kids, the, the, re, the punishment often is that embarrassment and that takes a certain level of awareness right. that oh I stand out oh everybody's laughing at me and a lot of times our kids don't necessarily even identify those right. factors because they're not seeing the rest of the world as separate from themselves they're very much into their own world and so there is no punishment per se when they do say something that shouldn't be said or should be thought right yeah it's that's interesting. interesting that's why I love that whole area of um, research that you guys are heavily involved with which is kind of secrets and telling lies and learning what the difference is and how to do that yeah we're actually designing a, a study right now on teaching kids to play tricks on other kids yeah. or on family members you know friendly pranks not not Amazing. mean ones yeah. but, but just how it requires the the ability to think about what the other person knows and plan your trick so that they don't know what you don't want them to know and exactly. you can't give, give it away and all exactly. that stuff and it's based of course on uh, on the deception uh, lesson in the skills curriculum. So. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, fun stuff. We're just about to get that off the ground. So. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Neat. All right, should we move on to the next question? Yeah, sure. I hope we helped that family a little bit. And if not, we've at least had fun talking about <laughs> interesting topics. <laughs> and I also do want to say, Shannon usually uh, reminds me to say this, that you know we do try very hard to answer the questions as well as we can, but there's no way that we could or would want to answer very specifically because right. we don't know much about the children that, right. that people are writing in about and right. we wouldn't want to give advice where it doesn't really pertain. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that a lot of our answers are just more general and theoretical right. rather than pertaining specifically to your child. Right, the sort of things that we've seen work overall, but yeah, not necessarily for any individual child. And also, uh, we should remind you, uh, viewers, if you write in a question and we address it, but perhaps we didn't really quite hit the nail on the head, go ahead and send a, a follow-up question or ask for clarification and uh, we'll be happy to get to it on a future show. All right, let's see. Next question from a viewer uh, named Teresa. Uh, how close are they uh, to finding out how autism is caused? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. That's a great question. Um, well, there's a lot of different groups that are doing research on looking at potential causes but here are some of the problems that come in the way in terms of conducting research and and you can elaborate on this of course you know when there are a million different factors um, which there are in this case with autism it's very hard to determine which one is actually causing uh, various symptoms versus which which factors are just correlated with the symptoms of autism now with autism we have a series of symptoms that have to do 
do with just the communication and let's say language delay. And then we have a series of symptoms that have to do with these social uh, delays that we were just talking about, kind of not understanding other people's minds, not ha not being able to, uh, you know, see people as separate from yourself, even basic social delays like eye contact and so on. And then there's the presence of those stereotypical behaviors. So those, those three areas um, as symptoms of autism. And um, in terms of research on what causes all three of those, really some uh, very, very few, I think six or so genes have been identified that correlate to some aspect of autism. Um, and so ideally, I mean, the right way to express it would be to say that some genetic components have been traced that will lead to either a, a sort of a social delay or a repetitive stereotypical type of behavior or some aspect of autism. Um, but the uh, general scientific community believes that there's in the spectrum of autism, there's at least 20 or 30 genes that would have to come together to interact and produce this type of um, symptomology. Not only that, but also that the, these, this whole gene pool would not necessarily be active on its own. And the belief is that some environmental trigger actually um, starts the process or uh, produces those symptoms. And we've talked many times on this show before that there are too many environmental factors that could potentially come into play. Uh, with some children, it's uh, pretty obvious that their delays were initiated after a certain period of growth. Like those are the kids that we call sort of regressive. And with those children, you see that they've grown, um, developed typically up to a certain point in life, and then they've lost language or they've lost social skills. And so with some of those children, theories have come up about what could be the environmental factor that caused it. Some people believe that it had something to do with a child's vaccinations. Others say that it could be just exposure to uh, you know, things in our food and so on that the children are not digesting properly. Uh, toxins in general, uh, a lot of our kids seem to not be able to detoxify fast enough from uh, metals in the environment and other types of toxins. So. Um, however, given that the spectrum is so huge, you know, you have children on one end that are completely nonverbal, uh, totally unable to in any way communicate or socialize, and on the other end of the spectrum you have children who are very high functioning, are communicating, their language is almost normal, but they have social deficits that set them apart. So all given that there's this huge spectrum and um, you know there's all these environmental factors that could trigger a variety of genetic uh, problems, uh, it's, it's virtually impossible to say one thing or another is causing the entire spectrum. Yeah, it seems very unlikely that, that they're ever going to discover the one cause of autism, right? It's, it's too complex of, a, of an it issue. It really is. And I actually don't even think that there is one single cause. And yeah, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the research that we do here at CARD, as you know, through the reason that we're uh, very much into our skills database, 
is that what we're hoping to do here is to generate enough information about a large number of children, both genetic, and that's why, you know, of course, we're doing the research that we are with Linogen. And so our, our hope is that once we have a lot of genetic information as well as kind of phenotypic information, information about the child's uh, demographics and their learning curve and their problem behaviors and all this, you know, their symptoms essentially, um, that we're hoping that with that we would be able to start finding clusters which could be called phenotypes or subtypes of autism. And I think that has to be a first step. Um, you know, as you find these phenotypes, then you're kind of looking at smaller groups of kids and that are very similar uh, in symptomology to each other. And it's much more of a hom homogeneous group. And then you can perhaps start to develop ideas about what caused it in those children versus another group. And so that's kind of down in the future and I think it'll be a while before we get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, in the meantime, it seems like um, every f maybe six months or so a study comes out that's really exciting and is maybe one piece of the puzzle, but still nobody's really integrating it all together. Like uh, just recently, uh, the study came out, I'm actually blanking on the author's name, but uh, it was published, uh, it was conducted here in the Valley where they correlated um, diagnosis rates with how close you live to the freeways, the 101 and 405 freeway. Right, right. And they found that if the mother lived within a few blocks of one of these major freeways, some of the most busy freeways in the world, uh, that they had a much higher uh, probability of actually giving birth to a child uh, on the spectrum. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, the, the assumption there is probably having to do with um, pollutants, right? Yeah. Air pollution from yeah. uh, from burning gasoline. So Or lead or something like lead. that. Yeah. And see, that's a great example. I'm, of, I'm glad you brought that study up because that just shows you the number of different um, things in the environment that could have a correlation, you know, I mean, for any research group to now be able to go back and track not only the child's entire history and what they've been exposed to, but also what the mom has been exposed to, right. is it's almost impossible to do that, you know, and so it's extremely difficult. I, I think, and, and you and I have discussed this as well, there are, even right now, now there are some genetic disorders that are very similar they resemble autism and it would be interesting to kind of carve them out and I think a lot of people are not aware of the fact that so, so many different genetic um, syndromes are so similar in, in their symptomology and it would be important to say okay well this is you know genetically what's leading to let's say Angelman's or one of the others and write about those and separate them out and then start to look at what's left and how can we phenotype the rest you know back in 94 I guess when they came out with the current diagnostic manual DSM-4 the the concept was the idea or the hope was to start subdividing but it was a very kind of uh, I think a lot of scientists had got, gotten together or clinicians as well and they had come up with ideas about well, it looks like there's a group that's called, you know, Asperger's, and perhaps there's that group called the regressive group, and they tried to call that the uh, disintegrative disorder. And so there were all these different kind of subclassifications, uh, you know, let's separate the higher functioning kids and call them PDD, NOS, and so on. And it didn't really work out very well, I think, because. 
um, autism was already pretty much on the rise in 94 and so a lot of us who were doing diagnostic work back then nobody really went back to re-diagnose their children as disintegrative disorder versus autism especially because um, the fear was that by doing that we would be um, affecting the child's funding Right. You know, the, a lot of the funding agencies were not really recognizing, let's say, childhood disintegrative disorder. Most yeah, people haven't. <laughs> most people haven't yeah. even heard of that. Yeah. Um, and it is definitely one of the autism spectrum disorders. Now, with the new DSM coming out next month, and I think next week, actually, on this show, I'll do a review of the new diagnostic criteria. But uh, with the new DSM-5 coming out, they've kind of gone in the exact opposite direction, which is sort of interesting. They've taken away all the subclassifications and we don't even have the subclassification Asperger's or PDDNOS anymore. And now it's just going to be called Autism Spectrum Disorder. And instead of trying to subdivide it that way, they're just trying to I guess classify it according to severity level and you know kind of more of a qualitative basis rather than a quantitative differentiation. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, it's interesting. Should be interesting. Should yeah. be an adventure. All right, let's take a look at our next question. Um, and actually, this isn't a question. This is just a piece of great news that a, a viewer, Linda, wrote in. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I love about Autism Live and about uh, Shannon Penrod is she doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's the real, honest truth. But at the same time. And she talks about a lot of really heavy topics that are really challenging and really uh, emotionally difficult for people. Uh, but at the same time, there's just a feeling of positivity, right, um, in the show of Autism Live, where you, if you watch Autism Live, you come away feeling a little bit better than you did when you started, Absolutely. feeling a little bit stronger and a little bit more empowered. So I just love the fact that somebody wrote in just with some great news, doesn't oh, want okay. any help, just wants to let us know about something great that happened. So let's take a look. So Linda writes, I don't have a question, but some great news. My 16-year-old daughter has Asperger's, and we were just informed by her guidance counselor that she will have enough credits to graduate six months earlier next year. Uh, we're so proud of her. So, That's awesome. Yeah, someone That's doing terrific. great in high Congratulations. school. Congratulations. That's terrific. Very nice to hear. Congratulations, Linda. All right, uh, let's take a look at the next question. Uh, Melanie writes in, uh, what's the best way to help my five-year-old nonverbal child understand what the toilet is for? Uh, when I sit him on the potty every 15 minutes, he looks at me like I've lost my mind. That's great. I love that. My poor husband has demonstrated more times than he cares to admit. <laughs> That's awesome. So potty training is uh, a continuing challenge, right? We get yeah. these questions frequently. Yeah. And yet what's interesting is that like, from a behavioral perspective, it actually tends to be one of the easier things that we deal with. And I always say that to parents who come in for intake and they're so overwhelmed with the concept of potty training. Uh, it doesn't quite work with modeling. Um, and I think if I'm not wrong, uh, the best procedure still we use, and I know a lot of people in the field uses the Fox and Azrin procedure. And believe it or not, that procedure has been in place for over, I would say, 30 years at least, because that yeah, was the first that I learned. And it's a very, um, it's a great and very simple procedure. Um, I think you can probably also get it online. And if you can't, um, you know, please feel free to write in and we'll actually send it to you uh, in, a, in an abridged version. And you can also get the lengthier version, of course. Um, essentially,
essentially the procedure t is um, you first of all you um, and this depends is this a girl or a boy did they say uh, uh, it doesn't really doesn't matter say. I mean at this point you essentially oh, boy. Yeah, boy. yeah so what you're doing is you're spending you start it's kind of a reverse shaping procedure so you start by spending a lot of time in the toilet with the child sitting on the toilet and with uh, shorter periods of time off the toilet and the reason you're doing that is so that the child actually does void and does gain a ton of reinforcers for voiding in the toilet and if you stay on the toilet long enough and you're drinking a lot of uh, liquids during that day you know eventually you're gonna have to void and when you do of course the reinforcers are given and you're allowed as a reward also off the toilet and over the course of a few days and as the child gets more and more successful with this the, the schedule kind of reverses so that you are now just on a time frame of going to the toilet um, you know, maybe sitting there for three, five minutes, and then the rest of the time you're free and running around. And so it's kind of a reverse shaping procedure. It is really successful, pretty straightforward, and you know, we used to do this procedure when we were students at UCLA. So it isn't something that's very hard. If you, the, I think it works the easiest with children the younger they are, maybe three or so, two or three. Um, obviously at that point the child, you would remove the diapers or underwear the whole day that you're working on this. I think part of the success of this is that you don't just do it as you're doing other things. You literally take two or three days off and do nothing else. You really focus on this so the child you know, when they're running around the house and they don't have diapers on, they're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable about urinating, let's say, because they don't have a diaper on or underwear, and you will be able to tell when it's about to start and uh, make sure that the child is successful. And just due to the reinforcers that they receive, once they void in the toilet, the process, they get it. They start to understand um, that this is what I'm supposed to do. That's right. And of course, it's always important to emphasize it's all based on positive reinforcement. We want to make it fun, huge rewards that the child wouldn't have the opportunity to, to earn in any other way. Um, sometimes people will decorate the bathroom, right, right, with posters of the child's favorite cartoon characters or play music that they love. Oh, we used to put TVs in yeah. the bathroom. Right. Make it a very pleasant place to go. We call it a, sort of a potty party, right? So, Absolutely. Um, oftentimes we'll do this starting on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, and honestly, by Monday morning, the We're kid done. is already peeing on the toilet a lot and right. getting reinforcers for it and spending a lot more time out of the bathroom. Yeah, and it's not some... uncommon to see a huge effect in it is and there's some little things that are pretty important you know like if you you don't really like you take a very high level reinforcer like let's say the television and you have it in the bathroom and you only allow the child to watch the TV once they urinate in the bathroom um, not the rest of the time and so that kind of automatically will produce this desire in the child to go to the bathroom and urinate and then you can gradually produce the give the reinforcer in other settings afterwards now keep in mind that this is you focus on urination not on bowel movements at this right. point if you catch a couple of bowel movements that's great you want to reinforce that too 
but you're not expecting the child, especially if it's a young child, to be trained both with urination and bowel movements at the very first weekend. And the second thing to keep in mind is that you're not talking about nighttime training. This is for during the day. Nighttime training, often a lot of the kids will continue to need to have uh, diapers or pull-ups until you do a whole different procedure to try to get them off during the night. That's right. But, you know, it is a, it's a very effective procedure, Fox and Azrin, and um, as I said, please feel free to write in to us and we'll send you that, or I'm pretty sure if you even Google that, you, it should come up. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, interesting note is that book is actually the best-selling book in the history of applied behavior analysis. Sold right. more books than anything by Skinner or anybody else right, right. Uh, because it has, you know, everyday practical use for virtually anyone who tries to use it. It really, really works. And it's a, and it's a very... Um, it, while it's easy to understand, it's extremely just based on pure science and it's a very well written book. One other thing that you already mentioned, but I want to reiterate, because we've actually done a couple studies uh, on this, uh, is that you really do have to remove the diapers. Um, mm -hmm. We've actually done a couple studies showing that if you keep the child in diapers while trying to potty train, they'll pee in the diaper a lot and yep. not urinate in the toilet very much, right? And so mm -hmm. if you take the diapers off, you think, oh no, we're going to have accidents. I'm going to spend all day cleaning up accidents, right? Well, no, it turns out, as you said, the kid gets feedback, right? The kid right. doesn't really want to urinate on themselves. And so the few times that they do, they get immediate feedback, which then helps decrease that behavior in the future yeah. and helps them be more successful on the toilet. Yeah, it's little things like that that are so important. And I remember when you guys did that uh, research study and it's really interesting that you wouldn't think that, but the child actually feels the difference. That's right. All right, let's have a look at the next question uh, from Stephen. I'm hearing on NPR that there's an untapped market for people with uh, Asperger's. Seems their high rate of productivity percentages are impressive. So I think we're talking labor market here. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you know what to look for uh, in phrasing this trade in applications and resumes? So I'm guessing he's talking about uh, how to, maybe tips for how to compose a resume or an application uh, for someone who has Asperger's disorder and is applying for a job. Do you have any thoughts there? You know, it's interesting because I think I would tend to agree with that. That I um, and I wouldn't say that all individuals with Asperger's have the same uh, skill level, but I do see some of them have uh, very specific kind of advanced skills in one area or another, and usually those are in. Uh, mathematical concepts or memory related things. Uh, we used to have someone who uh, was had Asperger's at, and was here for a while and used to be in charge of benefits and it was pretty interesting because that individual could very easily remember uh, you know hundreds of employees and who had what type of benefit structure and so on and of course those things you know just having that type of uh, visual memory that's organized in that format is extremely beneficial, useful. Sometimes when I have 
um, some type of activity like uh, some areas of data analysis or those types of things. I'm always looking for someone with those skills. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily tie it into just the uh, label Asperger's on a resume, but I would make sure to say, you know, um, has very acute memory skills or strong ability with mathematical concepts and those types of things. Because, of course, in the normal population, the typical population, you also have individuals who have those specific of skills. Yeah. Right. And so it becomes less relevant whether or not you're on the spectrum, but simply right. do you have skills that the potential employer is going to value and, and how do you sort of uh, emphasize those in the, in the Absolutely. resume? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's have a look at our next uh, question. We put out a, a sort of a general question to our viewers uh, asking, what is your child's most challenging behavior? Uh, and we promise to talk about them on the show. So let's have a look at uh, uh, some of our viewers' contributions. Um, okay, one viewer writes in arrogance. Uh, my son is a little factoid machine uh, and looks down at everyone, including his parents, uh, for how little we all know. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it makes it difficult for him to relate to everyone around him. Right, that's terrific. You know, that goes back to the previous question about some of our kids who have amazing memories. Right. And a lot of the kids actually uh, tend to, this becomes one of their, um, you know, something negative for them in their lives because it's so easy for them to memorize facts. And those could be, I've had children who memorized uh, geographical facts, historical facts. I had a child who knew everything you could ever imagine about every president of the United States. And, and I think it's, I think it's sort of, uh, for the child, it's kind of a game that they play because they're not very good at the social types of games as they're developing and they don't enjoy necessarily the interactions with peers but they're very uh, rewarded I guess by just adding to those particular facts so it's like anything else that when you become very good at something, a lot of people will tend to become arrogant about it and they're not even aware that they're being arrogant about it. Now, I think, so let's assume that we're just approaching the concept of what is arrogance, you know, and I think it's more than, I mean, let's not just call it arrogance, but it's kind of the inability to see that, um, you know, we're showing off about a particular skill that we have and it's the inability to understand that all different people have different skill levels of different things and that we are all good at one thing and not so good at something else and it's, so it goes more to the concept of understanding that we're all uh, equal and need to be respectful of each other and um, those are some principles that I think would be important to teach the child, kind of like, you know, what are pointing out or maybe listing some of the our own areas that are difficult, weaknesses, and then pointing out or listing other people's strengths uh, so that the child understands, first of all, that other people have different strengths as well. And then secondly, I think it goes to that whole theory of mind or social cognition deficit because <clears throat> the child has to be able to see how other people are viewing him when he's showing off. And I don't think our kids have that ability. So it would be very important to perhaps either model that and just be someone, you know, pretend to be someone that's put, uh, showing off about something all the time and only wants to talk about their own subject 
and then um, review that video maybe with the child and say, look, how does that seem to you? What do you think other kids are thinking? What do you think? How do you think other people are perceiving this? We do have a number of lessons in the skills curriculum that kind of go to this because, um, and it falls all under the cognition curriculum area because it really does have to do with teaching the child um, to be aware of how other people are watching him or seeing him and how that would lead to others not wanting to play, not wanting to interact. Um, and so you really have to kind of model it and describe and explain the offensive uh, features of arrogance to the child. Absolutely. I, you know, I see our, uh, our therapists do that a lot with the kids that we serve where they'll maybe uh, show a clip from a, a children's TV show mm -hmm. where one character is being really arrogant or really boasting or really bossy or whatever the character trait is uh, and they'll pause it and say okay why was he acting that way you know uh, how could he act different what effect did it have on his right, friends right. right how would you feel if he was acting that way to you how would he feel if you were acting that way to him right exactly um, and uh, I've seen people make some good progress in that way and also like you know like anything else in behavior analysis where you try to identify the function and you try to find a replacement behavior, you know, you really have to understand that sometimes for our kids when they're showing off like this, it simply means that they're not getting enough reinforcers right. and they're seeking out the reinforcers. In other words, look how good I am with all these facts I've memorized and I just, I really want acknowledgement. And so it would be important to um, <clears throat> give the child those same level of reinforcements, those that attention for maybe not showing off, for maybe pointing out the the skills of other people. Like you'd really want to find a more adaptive behavior, a more functional behavior, um, could be a completely contradictory behavior, which would be, you know, every time you um, point out someone else's good points, then I'm going to really give you a lot of attention. And that would be important as well, because obviously we tend to show off when we have low self-esteem or when we have not enough, we don't believe when in we ourselves. Want approval. Right? Exactly. And of course, uh, you know, as you, as you mentioned, the whole functional approach to everything we do in ABA is reminding us, well, the kid's not wrong for having that function. So if the function is, I want approval, the kid's not wrong. Right. It's fine that the kid wants approval, right? right. And right. so our job as parents and as therapists and uh, uh, service providers is to figure out other ways, more appropriate ways for the kid to still get what he wants. So right. yeah, he should get a bunch <clears throat> of approval. Why not? He's Absolutely. smart. He's a great kid. Now let's figure out a, a more adaptive way to do it. Right. And you know, like just going back to the exact uh, language that this parent wrote about, Sometimes our kids uh, will also just tend to want to play that one game where they're good at it. And so you end up seeing kind of what the, I think the parent re referred to as the rude portion of it or the arrogant portion of it because the child uh, really only wants to engage in that. And if you're not engaging in that particular activity, then they'll throw a fit or not want to engage at all. And that's very important is to like really get the child to be able to engage in other activities. We actually years and years ago um, started to measure uh, even just the, the conversation uh, when kids are limited in their scope they will have like five, ten exchanges of conversation if it's on a topic that they're good, good with versus a topic that they're not 
really good at and then the, the conversation drops to maybe one or two exchanges and so you know you'd have to re-establish and make sure that you're engaging in games where the child is good but also other games where the child isn't so good and then teach the child to really um, <clears throat> observe and point out and recognize other people's strengths in those games absolutely yeah um, you know one other and I guess we probably should move on to another question at some point but this is an interesting question it is it um, is because it's such a subtle thing arrogance it's not something we really actually talk about a lot in ABA treatment and in autism but uh, it seems to me that a lot of times the difference between something that's appropriate socially and something that would be considered arrogant is very very subtle oh it's, it's, it's very hard to define, subtle, right right and so it might require actually uh, role-playing with a child and specifically prompting them to, to say it in a way that's arrogant and say look look how does that sound okay and then specifically prompting them to say it in a way that's polite even the exact right. same words sometimes right uh, could be said with a different tone of voice and a different facial expression and have a completely different effect on your peers right? absolutely right and it's yeah. gonna require practice and video modeling and role-playing and, and right. it's gonna require lots of feedback it's not just it's you know true. you don't just tell the kid and then expect that oh I guess he should get it now right that's not how it works <clears throat> absolutely and you know the opposite I guess of arrogance is humility and one years and years ago I remember I think it was a parent who had written into us and said something like, do you, do you guys have a program, and then we developed this program, but do you guys have a program that teaches the kids to be more polite? And it was kind of interesting because you realize that, uh, you know, typically developing kids go through a series of, uh, you know, failures and successes in life, and they learn sometimes, not always, but sometimes they learn politeness as a result of those failures because they kind of, you know, they don't, they learn when it's not appropriate to say something or how to say it. Just like you said, it's just the very, very subtle features of what is considered polite. You know, please have a seat versus sit down, for right. instance. And so um, we did put a whole program in, which is called politeness. But um, I find that a lot of, it, it, with autism, with our kids, it's one thing to go ahead and try to teach them the content of what's considered to be humility and politeness. It's another thing to teach them the features of it, just like you said, kind of the way you say it, when you say it, all of that. And then it's another thing to teach them just to inhibit their own, you know, I guess, I don't know, um, desire to show off. Right. So inhibition is another big feature of this because a lot of our, a lot of times our kids really do want to actually play by the, by the rules and do the right thing, but they just can't hold back and they have to say something and then, and then it kind of ruins the thing. So, um, it is a step by step. It's a, it's a very complex thing to teach. And I would say, um, if you're, at this level, if your child is at that level, you would really benefit from both the cognition and executive functioning um, areas of the skills curriculum, which is the card curriculum, uh, because there's a lot that goes into getting a child to the point where they're fully aware of their environment and other people. And you really do need to kind of teach some of the basic steps before you start to approach just a very abstract concept like arrogance. Yeah, we, I guess we've broken it down into probably a couple hundred different activities really, yes. that you could do yes. to address arrogance and isu other issues of perspective taking and self-control and self-monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something stuff. like this, you, you know, if a child's not even able to take someone else's perspective, 
perspective, all the way back to the beginning of our programs would be maybe sensory perspective taking. A lot of times our parents don't realize that our kids just see the, they really do see the world differently. Right. And they don't recognize that other people see things differently. So, you know, th that's why the cognition curriculum takes you through this whole area where we teach our kids first how to take someone else's sensory perspective like in other words what do you see versus what does he see um, what do you hear and what does he and then go, how does that influence your thoughts you know thinking which is a whole area in cognition and then how does that influence your beliefs how does that influence your preferences and those are big areas and you have to kind of go step by step and understand all of those in order to realize oh wait other people have different preferences than I do they don't like it when I'm showing off I might enjoy it but they're not really enjoying it right. you know so this is it's a lot of uh, work to do in that area all right let's uh, move on to our next viewer question uh, again we're talking about challenging behaviors here uh, and the viewer writes in my six-year-old um, cousin slash foster daughter uh, her defiance obsession with the words poop and pee and her other fixations the fixating on poop and pee when talking about anything and everything and thinks it's funny drives me crazy uh, she's also so needy uh, if she could literally crawl up my womb I think she would be happy <laughs> I can't do anything or say anything without her having to know or be a part of it uh, and I get no space and she can't seem to get close enough to me I know she is insecure and I reassure her as much as possible All right so you know right off the bat the first thing that occurs to me and I'm sure to you as well is that she is attention-seeking she's attention-seeking in in multiple different ways one way is that she wants to be involved in everything that you're doing um, because she wants your attention and she's also attention-seeking by saying things that particularly get a reaction out of you like poop and pee so um, you know, the very short response to this is you need to do two things. One is you need to not give attention for the things that you don't want to increase or continue. Um, and the second one is to give attention for behavior that's more appropriate. So let's break that down for a second. I'm pretty sure that you're at a, it sounds like you're at a frustration level where when she says those words, uh, you react and um, your reaction believe it or not negative or positive it doesn't matter is what she's seeking um, so you, you would have to really work on not reacting at all when she says those words um, and that's really difficult obviously because uh, when we start to ignore something and put it on extinction um, what tends to happen is that it's called an extinction burst so it'll get worse before it gets better which you know you really have to uh, perhaps take some sedatives that day or be able to handle it for a little bit because she will try to get the same reaction out of you um, and she'll be kind of confused why she's not initially um, and you have to write it out and make sure that she doesn't continue to get any kind of reaction out of you with those words and ideally if you could do this in sort of a closed environment where she's also not getting a reaction from other people when she says those words maybe a day or two it'll start to really go down um, when she spends a little bit of time and she notices that oh I'm not getting any kind of reaction out of this at the same time you do have to spend 
specific amounts of time, structured time, doing uh, more appropriate adaptive types of activities where you do give her a lot of attention. Because again, remember the function is she needs attention. She's doing whatever she can to get your attention. And the more you reject her, the more that's going to increase because she's just your rejecting her is a form of attention. Um, so, you know, you really do need to have specific set structured activities with her where she's getting a ton of positive reinforcement and attention. And then when she says those types of things, uh, you're not really responding or reacting to it. Um, do you have any thoughts on that as no, well? Uh, no, I th uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really I mean, it's a very tough, bad. it's a tough situation because it's going to be very hard for you to make sure she doesn't get attention on those words from other people. It's just that's how it is, you know, and people will be shocked or surprised and that's why she's doing it. Right. You know, another thing that's worth pointing out to the viewers is um, when you when you live with a child or work with a child who does have kind of persistent uh, challenging behaviors, wh whether it's inappropriate language, whatever it is, you kind of have set up a history, sort of a way of interacting with them that's become normal for both of you, right? Yes. So it's normal for your child to push your buttons and it's become normal for you to withstand it as much as you can and then at some point you can't anymore, right? And so it's become normal for you to have anxiety about whether or not that behavior is going to happen. It's become normal for you to try to resist getting mad and it's become normal for you to eventually snap, right? I mean, right. that's what happens. Um, and so when you do start an effective behavioral intervention procedure, almost by definition, it shouldn't feel normal. It shouldn't feel natural. If it feels totally natural to you, then it's probably not much different from what you've already been doing, which isn't working, right? Um, so the first day or two, as you're describing, it's gonna be challenging and it's um, it's not gonna feel right. It's gonna feel weird. But the, but the number one thing too also is um, what some people call catching the kid being good. Mm -hmm. So like you were saying, lots and lots of positive attention um, when the behavior isn't happening. So in, you know, if you know you're going to be hanging out with your daughter for an hour, probably what you're doing now is worrying about when the next time is that she's going to say the inappropriate language or do something annoying and be all over you. The best thing to do is at the beginning of that hour is start thinking immediately, how can I catch her being good mm -hmm. and give her some attention? So mm -hmm. don't wait. Don't be reactive, right? Be proactive. Don't Absolutely. wait until your kid starts to do the thing you don't want them to do. Try to catch them before they've started that and give them what they want, right? right. While they're being good. Uh, and that can really go a long ways. Definitely. And that's a really good point you're making there. And, you know, having said that, I just can't help but, uh, you know, if you were a parent that I was working with, I would, uh, I guess the first thing that I would notice rather than trying to alter the child's behavior is that you really, uh, this parent really sounds worn out and uh, just uh, frustrated, uh, you know, I would, I would really suggest some, some respite for yourself because sometimes we get to a point where we're so irritated, we're so tired, we're so worn out that um, there's just, there is no way we can conduct these types of behavioral interventions. You know, with behavioral interventions, you really need to be uh, full of energy and very neutral. Uh, you can't be already kind of in a um, exhausted or in a kind of a reactive stage. And um, I think that it would be the best solution. And it is an important thing, as Jonathan said, 
if you don't deal with this, this continues to be your mode of uh, interacting with each other forever. And, and it only gets worse, really, with time and age. So I think the best solution at this point, if you can, is to possibly actually hire a behaviorist who can come in and intervene um, at least some of the time, some of the period of time so that you have freedom to do some of your own things, so that you um, are not so reactive, not so overwhelmed or exhausted as well. Um, and they are helping to set the contingencies environmentally and get things going because when when you come to a behavioral intervention with that level of sort of frustration and exhaustion, it just doesn't usually succeed. Um, yeah, it is important really for, for yourself to also have that. And, and it's a very natural reaction, of course, and I want to make sure I say that that we, even with typically developing kids, we get overwhelmed when they're all over us and constantly want our attention. Um, and so it's very normal that you would feel exhausted, irritated, and that, you know, uh, you just kind of want to uh, have some alone time. That's very, very normal. Um, and you deserve it. Absolutely. And so if you can try to produce that and give yourself some off time uh, and have the help of a behaviorist uh, to manage some of these things initially, I think that would be very important as well. Absolutely. Uh, and with that, I think it might be time to move to a break. Is that right, Emily? Uh, so after the break, we're going to come back with some more questions from viewers. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, filling in for Shannon Penrod here on Autism Live, broadcasting from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Uh, we are doing the Ask Dr. Doreen segment today. We're just about to wrap up our show with one final uh, question from viewers. Uh, shall we go ahead and get started? Sure, sure. All right. The question from the viewer is, how could you best explain to people that autism does not go away, but that every child can improve? Just because a child is not the stereotype does not mean that they miraculously just stop all of the behaviors and anxieties associated with self-regulating and social skills. It's very frustrating, especially for those in education who have not lived with it. Please help. Wow, that's such a fabulous question. I'm so impressed with uh, the parents who wrote that. So what I always say is that uh, you know, and this is the definition of any disorder in the diagnostic manual is that uh, the, the symptoms of the disorder have to be so, uh, I guess, prevalent that they completely conflict with having a, a successful, adaptive um, life at home or school or work, uh, depending on the age. And unless they conflict significantly or prevent the individual from having a uh, adaptive life or functional life, um, then they're not considered, it's not considered a disorder. And I've said that for years and years because that's how you're trained when you diagnose um, things. And it's funny because in the latest uh, DSM, it actually does say that with autism. It says that the symptoms have to be pervasive enough to uh, take away from normal functioning. What I always say with our kids, and this is such a big thing for people to say, you know, to use the word recovery or not, not recovered. Um, clearly, <clears throat> with autism, for instance, which is um, the most severe, I guess, of the of the spectrum disorders. Uh, you have to have a minimum of six symptoms within those particular areas or more. 
And of course, uh, often our kids will decrease the symptoms, which are, you know, like you can teach a child eye contact, you can teach a child language to the point where they're communicating normally. Uh, you would hope so, otherwise what are we doing here, right? And so as we teach those things, the child's symptoms will go from six to five to four to three. And if I was to re-diagnose the child at that point, I'd say, okay, now the child is no longer autistic, has autistic disorder, but now has PDDNOS. And ultimately you get to a point where the child doesn't have any language delay and perhaps has some social delays. And then perhaps the child's diagnosis would change to Asperger's. In some cases, we have a hard time teaching our kids inhibition, and at that point, perhaps the child's diagnosis would change more to ADHD. It doesn't really matter. Like, <clears throat> the point is that obviously, as the child learns skills, they lose some of the um, symptoms of autism and so they don't you could have five symptoms and you no longer would qualify for diagnosis of autism just that simple so explaining that to people I think is very difficult I mean I've struggled with that for 30 years and people will uh, criticize us and so on um, because I think also what happens Jonathan is that when someone is diagnosed for the rest of his or her life everyone is putting them under a spotlight and often our kids <clears throat> are functioning better than their typical peers in a million different ways I mean, look at how many of our kids are in college and how many of the general public of the United States actually end up going to university level education, you know? And they're doing great. They have boyfriends, girlfriends, etc. And as soon as they do something that could potentially be labeled as the spectrum of autism, they are because they're so under the spotlight and everybody's trying to evaluate uh, whether they're typically developing or not or is that a symptom of the autism or not and that sort of thing and so often I tell parents if you get to a point where your child is functioning pretty well try to kind of get rid of all that previous history as much as possible because when people people still don't have a good understanding of autism and it, they do tend to believe that in most cases it's lifelong and I don't know that it is I don't think that it is in, in every case and, and it would be important for the child to um, <clears throat> try to be integrated and not necessarily picked at um, or put under a spotlight all the time at the same time some of our kids are proud of the fact that they used to have a, a diagnosis of autism and that they overcame so much of the you know the difficult symptoms and are able to actually have lead typically healthy lives so it's it's a very difficult thing to deal with but you know, I guess the short answer is just tell people not to be so hung up on the label. I mean, the label keeps changing every 10 years or so anyway, and really it's just a list of, of um, symptoms, and, and often our kids um, don't have all of the symptoms that are required for an actual official diagnosis. It's a hard area. It is. It's a tough question, but uh, I think that hopefully you gave uh, the viewer some, uh, some clarity I hope so. there. All right. Well, uh, with that, I think we're out of time now. So I want to say a very special thank you to thank you. Dr. Graham Bichet for of fun, as always. taking an hour out of your week. Uh, it's insanely uh, busy travel schedule and work schedule. So we know thank you. Uh, it's not easy to take time. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and thanks very much to uh, all the Autism Live viewers who wrote in questions uh, and who keep the show interesting and uh, relevant.